This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. It's happening, folks. It's really happening. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office has convened the grand jury panel that will decide whether to bring criminal charges against former President Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and the company's executives, the Washington Post reports. The breaking news uh, that's emerging right now, the Washington Post only moments ago reporting that prosecutors in New York have convened a grand jury to decide whether former President Donald Trump should be indicted as part of their investigation into his business. The investigation by Cyrus Vance Jr. into whether the Trump Organization skirted taxes and committed bank fraud has lasted far more than two years. The grand jury will hear evidence three days a week for six months. Suggests that this investigation, which has been going on for two years, is entering its final stage. Now, prosecutors have been looking at whether the Trump Organization lied about its assets to defraud insurance companies and banks by saying they had more than they actually did, and also whether they may have lied to the government saying they had fewer assets so they could pay lower taxes. Now, former President Trump isn't the only one who could potentially be in legal jeopardy here. Uh, investigators have been looking at other executives and the company itself. In a statement issued Tuesday evening, Trump called the seating of the grand jury a continuation of the greatest witch hunt in American history. The rest of Trump's statement went as follows. No other president in history has had to put up with what I have had to. And on top of all of that, I have done a great job for our country. Whether it's taxes, regulations, our military, veterans, space force, our borders, speedy creation of a great vaccine said to be a miracle, and protecting the Second Amendment. This is purely political and an affront to the almost 75 million voters who supported me in the presidential election. And it's being driven by a highly partisan Democratic prosecutors. New York City and state are suffering the highest crime rates in their history. And instead of going after murderers, drug dealers, human traffickers, and others, they came after Donald Trump. Interesting that today, a poll came out indicating I'm far in the lead for the Republican presidential primary and the general election in 2024. Our country is broken. Our elections are rigged, corrupt, and stolen. Our prosecutors are politicized, and I will just have to keep on fighting like I have been for the last five years. The MAGA crazy train jumped the shark earlier this week with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signing into law an absolute batshit insane social media bill meant to pander to the most deranged of the Trump base. Silicon Valley is, an- is acting as a council of censors. Um, they cancel people. When mobs come after somebody, they will pull them down. They shadow ban people, which creates partisan echo chambers. And honestly, they are some of the major reasons why this country is divided. On Monday, DeSantis added his signature to the Stop Social Media Censorship Act, which greatly limits large social media platforms' ability to moderate or restrict user content. The governor argues the law will stop tech companies from censoring social media platforms that discriminate against conservatives, though you wouldn't know it by searching Twitter or Facebook, where conservative voices dominate. The bill is a legislative vomiting of Republican anger over recent episodes of supposed anti-conservative bias like Twitter and Facebook shutting down Donald Trump's account and suppressing the spread of the infamous New York Post Hunter Biden story. When you deplatform the president of the United States, but you let Ayatollah Khomeini talk about killing Jews, that is wrong. Most notably, it imposes heavy fines, up to 250000 per day, on any platform that deactivates the account of a candidate for political office and it prohibits platforms from taking action against journalistic enterprises, DeSantis declared. We the people are standing up to tech totalitarianism with the signing of Florida's big tech bill. Well, thanks, everybody. I think it was great remarks across the board. And at the end of the day, today what we're doing, we are protecting Floridians' ability to speak and express their opinions. This will lead to more speech. 
not less speech, because speech that's inconvenient to the narrative will be protected, uh, where it doesn't have those protections uh, going on now. But all DeSantis is doing is creating fake legislation to pander to his most aggrieved constituents and get himself a Fox News hit. If they took away Donald Trump's little toy. And because of that, we now have to, you know, adopt unconstitutional laws uh, in Florida and elsewhere. I mean, this is all red meat for Republicans everywhere around the country, not just in Florida. This is all about Trump. This is all like, you know, a, a bow of loyalty to Trump, re rearing his ugly head. But there's more here, folks, so much more. And I wish I was making this up, but I'm not. The bill includes a Disney carve-out companies that own a theme park or entertainment venue larger than 25 acres are exempt. The Supreme Court is set to dropkick this law like Steven Seagal since it's fucking unconstitutional. We're outgunned and undermanned, but you know something? We're gonna win. And I'll tell you why. Superior attitude, superior state of mind. <laughs> Michael Frumkin, a law professor at the University of Miami, told Wired Magazine, this looks like a political freebie. You get to pander and nothing bad happens because there's no chance this will survive in court. I don't know how you can have it both ways, to do something about hate speech and disinformation, but at the same time have no mechanism to hold somebody responsible when they post that kind of stuff. There seems to be a competition of sorts where GOP governors are outdoing one another to create the most right-wing legislation possible, as if Sean Hannity were keeping score with a golf pencil and whoever comes out ahead gets the GOP nomination and a free goddamn toaster. <laughs> While DeSantis is clearly in the lead, lagging not too far behind him is Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who last week signed into law one of the nation's most restrictive abortion laws banning procedures as early as six weeks. It bans abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. And before most women even know that they're pregnant. This is the most restrictive measure yet in the nation uh, and the most restrictive a recent assault on women's fundamental rights under Roe v. Wade. And critical rights continue to come under withering and extreme attack around the country. The worst part about this overly draconian legislation is the way it turns private citizens into abortion vigilantes. In addition, it has a really interesting enforcement mechanism that allows for harassing civil lawsuits towards uh, doctors, nurses, abortion funds, friends and family, anyone who essentially is deemed to have potentially aided or abetted in an abortion. Instead of having the government enforce the law, the bill turns the reins over to private citizens who are newly empowered to sue abortion providers or anyone who helps someone get an abortion after a fetal heartbeat has been detected. So again, you know, clearly designed to shame, intimidate providers, people driving their, you know, partners to a clinic to access abortion, like all of these things they're putting into question. So people are literally afraid to access abortion. Those assholes who stand in front of Planned Parenthood shouting at women are fucking bad enough. Get off my lawn. Did you hear me? I said get off my lawn now. Get off my lawn. But this takes it to an entirely new place where these freaks have been deputized to prowl Texas doctor's office looking for evidence of an abortion and then reporting those who have a procedure. Talk to one of my colleagues today in California who had a patient from Texas who Ubered from Texas to California to get access to abortion because they literally did not know uh, what to do. And, and I think that is the intent of these laws to create these unbelievable extra burdens onto patients who are seeking access uh, in an effort just to essentially control our bodies. If that wasn't enough, the Lone Star State is about to make it legal for anyone over the age of 21 to carry a handgun as long as they don't have a felony, which would make it the first to allow guns without a background check, a permit, or any kind of training. Just walk in, show your ID, and walk out with as many guns as you can carry. The Texas Governor Greg Abbott is expected to sign a controversial gun bill into law. It would mean you can carry a handgun in Texas without having a license, without having a permit, with no background check and no training. Supporters of the bill call it 
constitutional carry. They argue that requiring a permit or even a license impedes the constitutional right to bear arms. But gun control activists and now law enforcement groups are taking issue. All of this is in addition to the horrible voter integrity laws that exist to solve a problem that doesn't exist created by a lying ex-president. There are currently 250 such bills in 43 states as the GOP attempts to flood the zone in advance of the midterm elections and put their thumb on the scale for Republican candidates. You know, the election was a fraud. It was a rigged election. And when you look at what they did, it's so illegal. So I think things are happening at a very fast pace, much faster than people understand. You don't see any linkage between Donald Trump saying the election's stolen and then Republicans in all of these state legislatures rushing to put in place these restrictive voter laws. Even the Republican Lieutenant Governor of Georgia, Jeff Duncan, said that there was, that when this bill started to pick up momentum was when Rudy Giuliani was testifying that the Georgia election was a sham. I don't think anyone doubts that the reason 400-some voting bills have been introduced, 90% by Republicans, supported by the Republican National Committee. I don't think it's a coincidence after the election that this has happened. What was the big problem in Georgia that needed to be solved by a new law? What was the big problem in Texas? What was the big problem in Florida? What was the... These laws are coming all around the states and, like, what are they solving for? This dismantling of democracy on the state level is part of a larger trend, especially in traditionally red states that are pressing ever-increasingly radical MAGA agendas. I've said it once and I'll say it again as a warning. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the White House, he'll probably go to prison, but Trumpism seems to be winning the war at the local level as a permanent ideology for a group of aggrieved and dispossessed conservatives who are bent on pushing a truly repressive and fucking racist agenda. Just reaffirms that the Republican Party right now is not a serious political party. And I'm a strong Democrat, but we need two major political parties in this country that can argue and debate and come up with thoughtful ideas again on how are we going to compete with China? How are we going to rebuild the country? How are we going to make sure uh, health care is affordable? You need two political parties to have that discussion. And right now, we have one that's living in a world of delusion. And it's a slap in the face to the American people. Like the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction, this may be the awful legacy of the post-Trump years. As if to hammer home this point, on Tuesday, House Republican leaders broke nearly a week of silence about comments by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia comparing masks and vaccine mandates to the treatment of Jews by Nazis during the Holocaust condemning her language, but stopping short of punishing her. Look back in a time in history where people were told to wear a gold star and they were definitely treated like second-class citizens, so much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany. And this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. Georgia Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is taking a lot of criticism from GOP colleagues tonight after comparing coronavirus mask wearing to Nazi practices of forcing Jews to wear yellow stars. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy says Green is wrong and her decision to make the comparison is appalling. Democrats are calling on Green to resign. The slow response by Representative Kevin McCarthy to Green's string of ugly and fucking stupid and insanely anti-Semitic statements reflected the reluctance of top Republicans to take on the first-term congresswoman who had previously endorsed violent QAnon conspiracy theories and whose combative style has made her a favorite of former President Donald J. Trump and his far-right supporters. It is not only a historic, it is abhorrent. It's also apparently allowable under House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, who hasn't commented on it and refused to punish Green for past anti-Semitic statements she made. Wearing a mask compared to the murder of six million people? It's so far beyond the realm of decency, it could only possibly be made worse by comments from Marjorie Taylor Greene. I stand by all of my statements. I said nothing wrong. And I think any, any rational Jewish person 
didn't like what happened in, in Nazi Germany, and any rational Jewish person doesn't like what's happening with overbearing mass mandates. That's right, Eamon. We finally heard, as you mentioned, from Leader McCarthy, and missing from his statement is any sort of punishment or threat to perhaps uh, do something in response to what Green has said. Again, this reaction to Green was in swift contrast to the ouster of Liz Cheney from her leadership position for her repudiation of Trump's election lies. Instead, McCarthy issued a lame statement that served as an effective slap on the wrist to Green, but stopped short of taking any real action. McCarthy instead referred to anti-Semitism on the rise in the Democratic Party and made no mention of further consequences. You keep saying you got something for me Something you call love but confess You've been a messin' where you shouldn't have been a messin' And now someone else is getting all your best These boots are made for walking And that's just what they'll do One of these days these boots are gonna walk all over you And now for the main event Some days it feels like we're drowning in MAGA insanity from the exploits of MGT to Ron DeSantis Florida legislation. Trump, despite heading to prison, refuses to acknowledge reality. Sometimes it's hard to know what's real and what's not. Luckily, my next guest, Ari Melber, is the perfect antidote to all of this MAGA madness. As the host of The Beat, Melber's show is one of the most watched on MSNBC. He delivers the news with rigor, having won a 2016 Emmy, but is also known to pepper his delivery with hip-hop verse and is not afraid to tear into a guest who strays from the truth or clings too hard to party line. He's more Murrow than Cronkite, cool and detached in his delivery verse, the ranting screeds of his Fox counterparts. Melber also serves as chief legal correspondent for MSNBC, covering the Justice Department. FBI and Supreme Court, and is well sourced across the board. With Ari, you get the truth. I recently joined him for a classic hit with Stephanie Winston Walkoff and Jennifer Weisselberg, the trifecta of Trump enemies all together, and it was a blast. Today, I'm turning the tables, and he's coming to Mea Culpa to discuss what happens if Trump goes to prison, Rudy Giuliani, and just maybe drop some hip hop bars. So let's listen now to that conversation. The New York Attorney General obviously has serious evidence on a crime, or they wouldn't have upgraded their investigation from civil to criminal status. But what did they discover? Um, who will they need to squeeze to get the information and so on? Do you believe, like everyone else, that this case will be made through Alan Weisselberg? Michael, great to be on with you. I will fully admit to your listeners, uh, if we're starting with Trump org, you may know more than I do. Uh, but as, as an attorney and a journalist who follows it, uh, since you raised the question, it does seem there's a lot of evidence pointing to Weisselberg. It does seem that this is a serious probe that is not just rolling up, uh, you know, final evidence or checking boxes, which sometimes happens in, in probes that go nowhere. Uh, and so uh, the, the individual you name, who I'm sure your listeners know, is the money man and you know him well, you know him better than I do. It does sound like he was a name on the checks and sometimes knew as much or more about the money than anyone else. So if there is or were uh, any improprieties or crimes, it would seem that, yes, the money man would know a lot. It's funny because yesterday when I was on your show with Jen Weisselberg and uh, Stephanie Winston Walkoff, Something just kept popping into my head. And because we were, of course, sharing it, our trifecta, right, of trouble for the Trump organization and company, what came to my mind was that Alan Weisselberg is making the same mistake that I made and the same mistake that Rudy Giuliani is making in the fact that he actually thinks that Trump is going to be loyal specifically to him. See, this is a problem. I thought it myself too, 
that, don't worry, Michael, Donald will have your back. You're going to be okay, right? And he's going to be loyal to me, despite the fact that I myself have seen him act disloyal to every, virtually every other person out there, even including his own children. And then I started to think about what happened to me in regard to the hush money payments, the Russian collusion, the Mueller report. And then I realized that Alan Weisselberg is actually the perfect pansy for the scapegoat, very much like I was. Because what's going to happen is Donald is going to turn around and he's going to say, when it's his ass on the line, Oh, look, everybody. Look, look. It's not my name on the, on the, on the checks. It's Alan Weisselberg's. He's my CFO, right? Look at the, look at the invoices. It's made out and sent to Alan Weisselberg. Alan Weisselberg. Alan Weisselberg. And it's going to be very much like my, um, House Oversight Committee hearing when, you know, you guys have a very funny little clip on that where I think I say Alan Weisselberg's name 25 times throughout the course of my testimony. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you lay it out, Michael. And this is one of the things that, first of all, if you're around law, as we both have been, you do realize that it's all human beings. You could be very intelligent. You could be very kind. You could be a family person. But you're a human being, which means in some ways we all have different flaws. Some people's flaws are naivete. Some people's flaws are ego. I think that in these high-flying environments where the... A lifestyle, the environment, the seduction of power, all these things can become uh, confusing or somehow confounding for people. And so it, it really becomes a character study, which makes it interesting. I mean, there's a reason why people follow these stories and learn about the people. And, you know, you and I have discussed this in various forums now here on your podcast. But we've discussed it on television as well, which is it's this question. What, what happens when someone is in a situation and thinks I'll be different? And by the way, what happens if the last 10 times they thought that it did work out? You know, you think about that with something like The Last Dance, right? The Last Dance, I'm sure you saw parts of it, the ESPN. Did you see the ESPN uh, Michael Jordan documentary? I saw part of it. Yeah, I didn't get a chance to finish it. I had to unfortunately handle something else, but I do need to finish it. It's actually quite good. And you remember MJ, as, as we all do, it's like, is that a story about basketball? I mean, yeah. But what's it really about? It's a story about people. It's a story about uh, how people motivate themselves and the ideas and things they hold in their heads, right? And so if you're, in your case, or Mr. Weisselberg or other individuals, if acting like you were special or different or playing hard to get to an outcome, which a lot of people do in a lot of competitive fields, if that got you where you wanted to go 10 times in a row, it suddenly doesn't look, again, as a character study, it doesn't look as hard to understand why you would do it an 11th time. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, one thing I'd love to talk to you about right now is, you know, does does Alan Weisselberg think, well, every other time, even when he might have gotten nervous or there was a lot of heat or people said, oh, you can't go that far with Trump. If every other time it worked out for him, um, is that part of why now from the outside, people like you and others might be warning him. But on the inside, he's thinking, well, maybe this one will work, too. Yes. And that's so far probably what has kept him from revealing everything. But ultimately what happens is the district attorney, now with the attorney general's office, they close the box. They, they, the walls start to close in because Alan's crimes are all financial. And as, we, as I said on your show yesterday, numbers don't lie. People do. So, Alan, Mr. Weisselberg, is this your name on the check? Yes. Is this a copy of, you know, this document and, and this record? Yes. Well, where did this money come from? Well, it came from that account. Okay. Well, how come that account is XYZ? And you can't escape from documentary evidence, which as a lawyer, you're very well aware of. You know, it's, this is not opinion anymore. They have millions of pages of documents. Each and every one of those documents are a treasure trove against the Trump organization. And I do really believe that Alan Weisselberg will be the pansy and the scapegoat of this story. And you could already start to see this happening. You know, Stephanie Wolkoff um, put out a tweet the other day about a deposition by Ivanka Trump. 
And in that deposition, you can go on Twitter and find it, but in that deposition, they ask her questions about Alan Weisselberg. And she turns around and she says, I don't, I, um, uh, 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 I don't really know what his um, uh, role um, in the company actually is, what his title is. I'm not sure. And you sit there and you say to yourself, no, seriously, Ivanka, really? And you were a senior advisor to the president of the United States of America? I don't care the fact that it's daddy, right? That, you know, you tout your intelligence based upon, you know, your Ivy League education. And you don't know the role that the chief financial officer, a guy who you had to go to in order to get a check, even for your own Ivanka Trump you know, knockoff um, merchandise line, you don't know what role that the guy played? I mean, seriously? You know what we call that? We call that perjury. That's, that was the charge that was brought against me, lying to Congress. Well, you know, when you're giving a deposition, as you know, one of the first things that the opposing counsel says is the testimony that you're about to give is pursuant to right um, perjury, um, and, you know, you could be held you know, liable under the rules of perjury, you know, for not telling the truth. Well, are you really going to tell me that Ivanka Trump doesn't know the CFO who's been there longer than she's even alive? Doesn't seem possible, right? Yeah. And look, it may be a tell, you know, maybe a tell of, oh, this is where the heat is going. So now you know that person less. And that's almost second nature to them. When you were around the kids, I'm curious, and stop me if I'm asking too many questions, but, you know, we're talking about an area where People want to hear what, what you have to say uh, more than me, probably. When you were around the, the kids in that context, over time, did they become more confident and say, oh, OK, they're growing up, they're going to know what they're doing? Or were they always sort of deferential to basically anyone who was empowered by Trump to run the place? That's actually a really great question. So when I first got there, they were all relatively new, one year, two years, three years to the company between you know Don, Ivanka, and then Eric. And- The answer is that as time went on, they took on more responsibility. They stuck their names onto more projects and handled more things. But everything was done through Donald. There was not a single move that any of the kids made without first clearing it through Donald. And most of the time, Donald would say if it was a financially related issue, Go see Alan, then come back and see me. And if it was something else, they would say, go see Matt Calamari, if it had to do with construction or something, and then come back and and report back to me. So Donald was the ultimate decider, but he he would constantly refer them to go to other people within the organization that held similar, like myself, executive vice president titles. They didn't do anything without first and final clearance by their father. Hi folks, Michael Cohen here, and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics, so if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. Make sure to download Tuesday episode with theoretical physicist Dr. Michio Kaku, who joins the show to discuss his book, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. It's truly mind-blowing stuff. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show, like the March 23rd episode with Leia Rimini on Surviving Scientology. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether it's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. Search The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Ari, say Trump is found guilty on criminal charges for tax evasion, conspiracy, and obstruction of justice. I, I mean, dream with me for just a moment here. How much prison time do you think that he can get? And let's take this exercise a little bit further for a sec. Where does he even serve, right? And does the Secret Service go to prison with him? Well, this is why when you get down to this road, it seems like an episode of 24 or, or, or some movie. You know, in my job, I, I take being chief legal correspondent uh, seriously, which means even though sometimes it may be sort of annoying, <laughs> you know, when people on uh, watch and go, oh, but come on, Ari, you, you know, or you think, or, or you've got to agree with that. You know, when I cover trials, we don't presuppose an outcome one way or the other. Uh, and I do take that seriously. So there's a world where uh, Donald Trump is, is, is not charged at all because these investigations don't find enough evidence. There's a world where he's charged, which would be quite a spectacle, I think you can imagine, uh, Michael. And we cover that, and I cover that fairly. And then we cover whether 12 of his peers convict him or he's found not guilty. So I, I, I'm not planning or rooting for one outcome or another. Now, the legal question you ask is fascinating. What are the requirements under law when there's that tension? It would seem to me that, you know, the only precedents we have are for other public officials uh, we've definitely seen governors and others uh, do serious prison time in serious facilities, uh, and they are generally treated like any other inmate. If there is a security risk that's generally first handled by the prison, uh, to pick an example, uh, we, we all saw Officer Chauvin recently convicted. There are reasons why the authorities have already said they they, they have significant concerns for his safety in prison. He was uh, he was sentenced to prison, not to a vigilante killing or anything else. And so they've been keeping him in isolation for that reason. Isolation is one of the measurements. Now, when you get to a the, the prospect, call it any former president, in this case, you, you said former President Trump, it would seem to me, I haven't studied the question, but legally it would seem to me that if federal law provides for that kind of uh, protection for ex-presidents for for various reasons. I don't think that would necessarily be automatically forfeited just because they're incarcerated. So in theory, uh, you would have the prison providing the terms of incarceration as well as his first line security. And then you could have potentially in addition other government officials there for that purpose. And the other examples are, you know, people said, well, what if what if bin Laden were caught alive? What would that trial be like? What would that be like in prison? I mean, there are, uh, you know, there were uh, other trials after wars. I think there are situations that are highly complex, but yeah, you follow the law. If the law says the agents go with them, whoever the ex-president may be, then so be it. Well, that would be a pretty shitty detail, right? Even for a secret Sounds service like guy. the worst uh, I mean, they do have... possible detail. <laughs> Could you imagine? It's like, uh, anybody here want to spend the next five years in prison and worse, with Donald Trump, uh, I'm not really sure that you're going to find anybody that's willing to do that. But there is a precedent now, and it may not be a United States president, but you do have the case of Sarkozy, where I think they found him guilty and they're sentencing him to, what is it, one year in prison? I, I have to agree with you. I think, I think ensuring Trump's safety in prison would be extremely difficult. Which prison would it be? And then worse than that, as the former president for four years, despite the fact he has an insanely poor memory. I mean, his memory really is shit. He doesn't know one thing from the other, mostly because he lied so much that he confused himself. But he still has national security secrets inside that head of his. And what's the chances that he would sell that secret to somebody or simply just blabber it out because he's a fucking moron while sitting in the yard? I mean, Lord knows he's not going to be working out, but he will be standing in the yard and maybe he ends up trying to impress somebody with his knowledge and he gives away national security secrets. That's one of the problems. So I think if, in fact, they find him guilty um, of tax evasion, conspiracy, obstruction of justice, or any of the other multitude of cases that are now pending against him. I do truly believe that one option is that they would turn one of his properties, because across the street from Mar-a-Lago, he now has three homes. You can actually ensure that there is no Wi-Fi so that he can't um, receive any additional benefits over any other federal inmate. You could potentially take away his cell phone, 
right? Um, you could limit who comes in. The Secret Service would have to be posted outside where he would now be required to pay for their, for their time. There's a multitude of things that they can do. And let me tell you something. Home confinement is not easy. And I'm speaking now from personal experience. It's not easy. You know, you want to go outside, you got to get permission. You want to go on a television show like I did with yours, you have to get authorization. And I do. And I respect it, even though the fact the judge said I didn't, they claim that I do. And so I do. I'm trying to follow all the rules. So I do believe that there are options in order to hold him responsible and charge him. But I do really believe that prison, as much as many of my listeners are going to be angry about this, I do believe from a national security perspective, he's a bigger challenge to this country incarcerated than he is under a home confinement situation. Now, Ari, earlier this week was the one-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. Do you think that we've come any closer whatsoever to meaningful police reform? And secondly, what do you make of the recent Mother Jones piece that posited that George Floyd murder and subsequent social justice protests served as a great awakening to white America that this is now in danger of retreating to its old position of indifference once again? If you can, discuss this with me and my listeners. That's a great question, Michael. It's issue near and dear to a lot of Americans. You know, I think when you look at what the Floyd killing did, it was the tragic and perfect storm of the moment we were in. Uh, These type of killings are all too common. Um, The United States police use force at a much higher rate uh, than most police forces in democracies. They kill about a thousand people a year, many of them unarmed. Those people are of all races. So you we report on stories where white kids were unarmed to get get killed in a way that they might not in Denmark. Uh, and then it's disproportionately used against uh, black people, specifically black and brown men, especially. I think that what happened and when I say perfect storm is people were home more. People were talking to a smaller group of people in their lives because of quarantine, but they also were sitting around with less to do. And the video you know, we, we see this in the news, Michael. There are times where there's a story and everyone talks about what people said about the story, but they don't know all the details of the story itself. Uh, and that's why sometimes people criticize TV or radio or the way we, we, we deal with media, because everyone's kind of talking about what was said. This was one of those times where I think a much higher than average number of people saw the video. And I think it's very hard if you see the video in its entirety to not conclude that it was excessive force. Now, whether it was technically a murder and what degree of murder is a legal proceeding, right? But was it justifiable or excessive force? I think it's very hard not to see that. Then you think about the way that operates writ large. So I do think there was evidence that people really came to that and some minds were changed and people learned more. When you look at the data, we saw a surge in support for Black Lives Matter that has in the last several months here, a year later, started to taper off. Then you say, what is to be done about it? And I'll just give you two lanes. There's the narrowest lane of should that person be held to account? Um, and there's a guy named Philip Stinson who covers and, and documents uh, these things. And he found that over about 15 years with over 14,000 police killings, there were zero or one murder conviction a year. So it almost never leads to the point that there's a conviction. So the fact that that Officer Chauvin was convicted by a jury of his peers in a fair and open trial is different and is a change. And for some people, they say that's the end of the story. That's lane number one. What happens in that case? And lane number two is, is there more we can do to prevent this from happening in the first place? And a lot of experts and a lot of evidence suggest yes. Now, that doesn't mean that there's only one answer or that it's from one party or there's one way to do it. Uh, But I think it's certainly clear when you look at problems. If you look at a big problem, like somebody comes in and they commit terrorism in the United States, First, you say they should be held to account. And then second, you say, gosh, is there anything we can do better to prevent this? Wouldn't it be better to prevent it in the first place if it's a problem, if it's a tragedy? And so here, I think the structural question is, are there things we can do to prevent it? And that's a longer answer if you want to go into that. But I think the real debate right now is, you know, you had the trial, you had the conviction. I didn't see any unrest. I didn't see problems. I think America saw in that way that the system or the justice system did what it did. Now, do you want to do anything else to prevent this? And the, the final thing I'll say about that is because we chart this, the rate of uh, police force and shootings right now in May 
is at the exact same rate that it was last year and the year before. So it's not like structurally police are using less force or killing less people. That hasn't changed yet. Now, you could say if you were, you know, real big into policing, you could say, well, that's, you know, that's how it works. And it's got to be that violent. And you say, well, other countries do it differently. You say, yeah, well, this is America. We could we should do it this way. I think it's a it's always a question of do you think there's a problem or not? But a lot more people nowadays seem to see there is a problem. And there's a lot of videos that show police coming to a situation, escalating it. And you and I know and listeners may or may not that fleeing the police and resisting arrest, that's a crime. You shouldn't do it. But under our constitution and law, the punishment for that crime is not murder or execution on the spot, right? That's a crime, but it doesn't mean that the police have the right to then kill you. So uh, you could literally run from the police. I'm not telling anyone to do that, but under law, you could run away from the police. If you're unarmed and you're running away peacefully, you're, they're not allowed to legally to shoot at you. That's not how we do it in a, in, a demo, in a democracy. So I do think there's a lot of larger questions about how do we fix policing if we think that it's fixable. Well, I'm intrigued by your point. You know, what can be done? I would actually like to hear from you what you think can be done, because you got to look first at the root of what the infraction that George Floyd was being detained over a fake $20 bill. I mean, this it's it's like Eric Garner with selling individual cigarettes and these people lost their lives for it. So you have to start with the very base of the of the mountain and then work our way up because if you listen to Fox News Eric Garner was responsible for his crime, and unfortunately what happened happened, but things like this happened. And the same thing when it came to George Floyd. And I say, no fucking Rudy, what, uh, Rupert Murdoch and Fox News and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. That's not the way it's supposed to happen in America. If you're, if you're sitting there and there's an issue selling an individual cigarette— a fake $20 bill to lose your life over. So no, I'm really intrigued as to what can be done because these are stupid reasons for, first of all, I think it's a stupid reason for police to even get involved. But what I saw from these scenarios are seriously bad cops. Now, I'm pro-cop, and I say this all the time. I have several friends who are police officers. I have friends who have brothers uh, and sisters who are police officers. I am not anti-police, and I also do not believe in defunding the police. At the same point in time, I don't even understand why a police officer was called to a scenario where it's a fake $20 bill. Yeah. Right? I used to be in a business, in the transportation business, and we used to, on a regular basis, we used to constantly get you know, fake 20s, even a fake 50. And I got to tell you, that fake 50 was so good that the FBI showed up to our office to ask us who we think we got it from uh, and to give them the names of all of the drivers because they, under, they believe it came from Iran, that they're producing fake bills in order to flood our currency. I have no idea if it's true or not. But I asked if I can keep it. Of course, they said no. I wanted to frame it. It was that good. The paper was good. You looked up. You saw the reflection I into it. I mean, it was that good. But over a fake $20 bill, that's the base of the mountain that pisses me off the most. So, Ari, what do you think can be done? Well, I think, I think all of that's fair. One issue is how many, how many dilemmas or social problems are we dealing with as frontline Policing. So tax evasion could be an issue. Uh, people not reporting the funds for their nannies could be an issue. You know, some people are really good about it. A lot of people aren't. Now, no one's saying that that you should break the law or skirt the law. But where do we as a society deploy police and the force and threat of force and possible violence that comes with that? Right. You don't always see in most cases people who I'm just going to use the example of not not putting aside tax and social securities uh, funds for the nanny or the housekeeper or what have you, which is a, something very common. We've seen cabinet secretaries have their nominations held up over that. We don't usually send police to barge down the door for that or to serve an arrest warrant for that. And yet we do for what are actually sometimes smaller financial crimes. The $50 you mentioned, right, is just measurably smaller than someone who had thousands of dollars that they should have put aside for social security tax or the nanny, and they didn't. So this reminds us that there are just other disparities. The war on drugs is a complex issue because on the one hand, drugs, when when they're not well patrolled, can be a real social ill. Anyone who's known someone who's battled addiction, 
I don't care what type it is. It could be, it could be cocaine. It could be opioids. It's serious, right? So nobody's here. Sometimes you talk about this stuff and people think they're saying, oh, well, you think everyone should just do everything? No, we're talking about how should that be dealt with and regulated and uh, is frontline police and the use of force the best way? So number one, I think you can look at the fact that the United States compared to other countries with similar situations uh, seems to do over-policing and over-criminalization. And if you criminalize too many things and everyone's walking around potentially a criminal, and if you add that to a system that really goes after the poor minorities more than other people, then you have a lot of injustices that come out of that. So that's big picture one. Number two, we need to figure out um, what we're asking police to do. And that's why, as you say, it's not about demonizing any individual person. Are we asking police to be warriors, to have zero tolerance policy, to stand down every bit of potential challenge they find in the street? Or are we asking them to keep the peace or to respect the neighborhood or do community policing in their own neighborhoods? That's something that I ultimately we have the people that I hold account for that are politicians, then us, the voters, and then the police who carry it out. Police are in a tough spot in the same way the military are, because you could be a great soldier and get set off, sent off on a terrible mission. And then everyone says, look at what you're doing, fill in the blank. Look at what you're doing in Iraq. And they are doing it. But. But we sent them there and we have to be mindful of that. So number two, we have to look at that mission. And I do think in many police departments and in many cities, and by the way, this is not a partisan issue. Many of these cities are run by Democrats. In many of these cities, uh, there's a kind of a quote unquote warrior mentality. And they send out the police to be real tough and have zero tolerance and crack down. And then you see these police officers, you see four police officers in a fight restraining a 16 year old. And you're thinking, well, well, who sent them to do that? And what's the training for that? And why is that even a worthwhile activity? That's number two. And then number three, this is where deterrence comes in. I mentioned it last because I don't think the goal here is to have them, as many cops in jail as possible or, 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 or act like they're all bad apples. But, Michael, if you go to the doctor and he makes a mistake, right, that doesn't mean you automatically get to sue him. But if you go to the doctor and you find out that he intentionally hurt you and when you were getting surgery and then you look it up and you found he did that five other times the fact that he's a doctor which is generally great i mean i think we all rely on doctors boy we did a lot last year doesn't mean that there's no way to ever hold him accountable the average person says wait he hurt me while i was in his care that's bad he's like one of the bad doctors what are my rights well in every profession as you know and i'm sure some of your listeners do because they're listening to, to me a culpa they're probably interested in the law in every other profession, you generally have some right to take that person to court. And then if it's totally frivolous, it gets tossed. But if you have a case, you have one. We have qualified immunity in this country in federal law and over 45 states, which means that if the police officer does something bad, you have a very high bar to get into court. You most of the time can't get in. I'm simplifying, but that's that. And so while I don't think that every officer should be worried about getting sued every every time he or she walks into a, a, a situation, I do think that it's quite clear, and anyone will tell you this, <laughs> if you don't have to worry about any consequences for what you do, you might still always do the right thing because you're great, or you might find that some people find out that they have that consequence-free environment and they do more. And I think that's a big issue for policing. And again, don't I don't want listeners to mishear me. I'm not saying that cops should be sued out of existence. But I am saying that if you look at industries that have some of that, I mentioned medicine, versus industries that have none of it, police, there's not a lot of deterrence. I told you they barely, rarely get convicted in, in prison, I mean, uh, in, in a, a criminal context, and that might be for good reason sometimes, but then they don't even get tested in a civil context. Well, if both doors to the court are closed, they don't got much to worry about. Yeah, and that's why not only do we need police reform in this country desperately, but we need Department of Justice reform, prison reform, because that qualified immunity extends to the prosecutors and to the judges as that's well, true. which is a real problem that I have, especially when we start to see like there was um, a black gentleman that I think did 24 or 25 years every year. When they would talk to him about it, he would continue to say the same thing he did day one. It wasn't me, right? Not, it's like Shaggy, right? right? It wasn't Shaggy. me. And, and it turns out that it wasn't him. And the poor guy ends up spending 25 years 
behind bars. I was there for 14 months, and I have PTSD. Yeah. Could you possibly imagine 25 years going to bed like I did, waking up like I did every single day, knowing that I shouldn't be here? I mean, that really grates onto your nerves. But, you know, the one thing is, the, when I talk about police reform, they do have stand-down policies. For example, how many times have you seen where they will back off from a car chase through a residential neighborhood because somebody ran a red light or they have an expired tag or, or what? Simply because the risk is too great for the scenario. And that they should employ yep. when they're speaking to somebody about a fucking fake $20 bill. Or about selling an individual cigarette. Stand the fuck down. It's that easy, right? You don't need to escalate. You don't need to be the toughest guy on the block 24-7. We respect our police officers simply because they're in blue and they have a badge with a gun hanging off the side of their, of their hip, right? They are respected. You don't have to sit on top of a guy's neck. When the guy is begging you to please get off, when your hands are already cuffed and somebody is sitting not only on your ankles, but they're also sitting in the middle of your back. You know, there comes a point in time where it's excessive because I do believe that this officer is the rotten apple out of the bunch, right? Now, I don't say he's the only one, but I'd say for the most part, most police officers are really good, honorable people trying to do the right thing. This is just one of those unusual cases. And I was extremely satisfied to see the judgment that came down. And I believe that when you start to see things like what happened even in the Enron case, right, where you start to see them uh, messing with Brady material, where prosecutors are providing false information and the judges are in on it with the prosecutors simply because they spend so much time together. The prosecutor's on the fifth floor. The judge is on the sixth floor. Department of Corrections is on the fourth floor. This is not fair if you're an average individual. Uh, like it's just, it's just not, and that's why I am a big proponent for police reform, for DOJ reform, for prison reform. This all needs to change because this country is changing and unfortunately slower than I would like, but it's taking people, unfortunately, like the death of George Floyd to help to move us into the right direction. So I'm also thankful that they actually named a law for him. And that way, you know, years to come, people will continue to remember, you know, this man who lost his life for, you know, helping to make America a better place. When you lock down 22 hours a day on home confinement, you begin to miss the simple things that many people take for granted. For me, that includes the simple pleasure of sitting down in a restaurant and ordering a steak. Luckily, I love to cook, and Omaha Steak delivers restaurant-quality cuts to my doorstep, allowing me to recreate my favorite recipes in the comfort of my home, surrounded by the people I love. So, thank you, Omaha Steaks, for keeping me stocked with the meats. But I also want to remind those of you free to leave your homes that summer is almost here, and that means backyard grill-outs. And it is not complete without Omaha Steaks. Visit omahasteaks.com and enter keyword Cohen in the search bar to order the mouth-watering Let's Go Grill package today. Not only will you get great savings, you'll get the tasty bonus of 12 ultra-juicy Omaha Steak burgers free. That's almost four pounds of free burgers. To top it off, you'll also get $20 off your first order. The Let's Go Grill package includes four butcher-cut filet mignon, four boneless pork chops, one pound of chicken breasts, four kielbasa sausages, and so much more. I'm not going to lie. You've never had steaks, chops, and sausages this good, and I've eaten the best. Trust me. Here's to warmer days filled with fun family memories and epic backyard grill-outs featuring the best steak of your life. Guaranteed. So go to omahasteaks.com, use the code word COWEN in the search bar, and for a limited time, get 12 free Omaha Steak Burgers and $20 off at checkout on your first order. That's omahasteaks.com, keyword COWEN. 
Moving on for a sec, Ari, President Biden's strategy seems to be one of boring the American people (laughs) with stability and competence. It's hard for me to say that, you know, without laughing. But he is. He's boring the shit out of the American people with his with his actions of stability and competence while pushing through a progressive agenda that could have far reaching consequences for large swaths of this nation. How would you grade Joe Biden so far? Well, it's early, but I would say he's definitely been a more bold and transformative domestic president than I would have than many expected or even than he might have ran on. Um, And he's certainly done more big government spending, although we're in a certain moment, we all know, than most recent Democratic presidents. If you like that, you'd say he's gone big. If you're worried about the the debt or how it's going to go, there's always these economic debates. But I certainly think that he's been effective at what he wants to do. Right. You can always have everyone can say, well, I I disagree with him. Sure. Mitch McConnell is someone who I'd say is very effective at what he wants to do. Now, sometimes what he wants to do is just stop anyone else from passing anything. Right. But uh, when I say when I say that, I I would say he's at a very effective start to the presidency. And I know we don't have much time left. I don't know. Five. But but I will tell you this. Uh, You you use a funny term, Michael, which is boring. I think you're right. I think that's deliberate. And. You know, Robert Greene is a, a writer who studies sort of strategic philosophy and Sun Tzu and that kind of stuff. And he talks about how really effective people tend to win through actions, not words. Um, we just talked about the former president who was all about words and PR. And I think people know that uh, we're learning that Biden is trying to win through action. So you don't see him spiking the football every time uh, he, he uncorks another billion dollars out of the out of the you know, the coffers, he's just doing it. And now he's trying to get another bigger bill passed. So I think we're learning a little bit, as you say, about his governing. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to, for example, the COVID um, relief package, I I give him an A. And I've talked about this on other shows. Uh, I give him an A. But when it comes to police reform, the Department of Justice, I'm still trying to figure out what is Michael Carvajal of the BOP? And again, I'm going to make this about myself for a quick second, right? Um, because I was trying to, through my writ of um, habeas corpus, I tried to help to influence the release of about 20,000 federal inmates who are of the lowest possible recidivism that the BOP has able to calculate And they should be returned to their homes. They should be able to start to figure out how to reintegrate themselves back into their family and their community and start paying taxes and the whole nine yards. But for that, I give them at best a C minus, you know, prison reform, Department of Justice, police reform. Um, There's so much more that needs to happen. And the funny thing is we all turn around and think that it has to come from Joe Biden. I disagree. He has a staff of over, what, 5,000 people sure. working in the Capitol, right? Each and every one of them should be doing like what we used to do with the Trump Organization, which is to stand in line outside Donald's office waiting to come in to get his approval or to get his comments onto it and then move forward. But, yeah, I, I want to keep moving forward here because one nightmare scenario for me is that the Democrats take a walloping in the midterms and that they lose the House and the Senate. Because then suddenly we have the unprecedented scenario of a Congress answering to a failed and dangerous ex-president with sedition on his mind. Do you see the GOP in a position right now to take back the House? Or will the above prospect of the lunatics running the asylum scare the shit out of enough moderate voters that they'll vote back um, any GOP gains? It's hard to say. I I think we all know the cycles, if you study political history, that uh, you usually see the midterm election after a shift like this to go the other way. And you have traditionally a different voting bloc. And the lower turnout elections have, have favored Republicans in the modern era and high turnout elections have not, which is part of why we've had these battles over voting rights and other things where you see this real attempt to crack down. So what I'm saying with regard to the midterms is the House Republicans should have a decent hand and you have gerrymandering and other issues. So we're in an unusual place where losing presidents don't usually hold this much sway. George W. Bush certainly didn't. Uh, you know, he, he had two terms, but even as a victorious president, he was sort of went out. Uh, to a different lane, lane in the in the party, uh, and one termers, even less so. Um, the fact that Trump is this unique one termer with a stranglehold over the party does tell you probably the kind of mode they're going to be in running for reelection. 
which might hurt them in the general, but it might in a, in a national election of presidential year, but it might not in the midterm. So, yeah, I think it's all up in the air. Ari, as we're kind of winding down, um, you know, the conversation, you've been roasted by the likes of John Oliver for your love of quoting hip hop lyrics, True. right? Amidst your reports, or as the kids say, you know, spitting bars. <laughs> so, you know, um, you know, I hope you prepared the goods for my audience. What's the right lyrics for, say, Alan Weisselberg turning snitch on Trump? That's a good question, Michael. And you're right. John Oliver's had fun with, uh, with what we do and, uh, and, you know, um, let me think. All right. Uh, Weisselberg. Well, this is what I think he wants Trump to think. He would want Trump to think that he would be like the classic loyalist to the end, which brings me to Jay-Z. Plead the fifth when it comes to the fam. I'm like a dog. I never speak, but I understand. And that's how people like Manafort, and maybe Weisselberg Act, they say, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll protect you to the end if you protect me. We've discussed and you've been very uh, uh, clear and uh, eloquent about why that doesn't always work for everyone, Michael. Um, and I do think the other the other way to look at it. So that's what he would want. The other way to look at it is very simply Mob Deep from Queensbridge, right around the corner of us New Yorkers. Uh, crime pays, but for how long until you reach your downfall? And I don't know what. Only only Weisselberg knows what he did or not. But if there was crime that was paying, it may not pay to the end. Very, very good. You know, actually, there's one last question that I do have to just ask you, because, you know, I was watching television this morning and, you know, and I talk about him a lot on this podcast, Andrew Giuliani, Mm -hmm. right, the idiot son of Rudy. And something came to my mind and I was meaning to bring it up on the show last night as I was with you. Do you realize that if by some miracle of God, that Andrew Giuliani actually wins the governorship, that Trump's fate and his children and his company's fate rests in the hands of Andrew Giuliani. Because I believe that one of the reasons why Trump is pushing him or, or Rudy was pushing Andrew to get into this crazy race is in the event that he's found guilty of the state charge he can actually have Andrew Giuliani pardon him and others. So he would now have both a federal. It dawned on me yesterday, and I was meaning to blurt it out, but like with this show now, we ran out of time. And it was just something I want for us to get back into on the next time. Because think about it for a second. If in fact that Trump is found guilty, which he is, and I believe that he will be, Andrew Giuliani would then have the pardon power. To provide Trump an out. Uh, it's a great legal point, Michael. Uh, we haven't discussed it on here. Maybe we will. Dis- I mean, we're discussing it right now. We'll discuss it on both of our respective uh, programs. But yeah, as you say, many people took it for granted that, oh, if you have these state charges, it, whether it was during Trump's presidency or not, there's no federal pardon. If somebody at even a later date uh, becomes governor and they're your ally, in this case, your family, then yeah, that would go a long way towards addressing any state charges. It's, it is interesting. And for those who think, well, New York always goes blue. I mean, you have this you have a Democratic governor right now. You know, Pataki ran as a moderate and was a governor for a while. So anything's possible. It's a great point. Um, And although I I could always use more time, Michael, I appreciate uh, you on on my program. I appreciate my maiden voyage on yours. uh, And I I really appreciate and I think people learn a lot from the way you're willing to share. So I know your listeners feel that way. So I thank you for that as well. Well, Ari, great seeing you. Great speaking to you. Yes, I will return to your show. I hope that I'll have you back here on Mea Culpa. Uh, Enjoy and I'll see you soon, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. And now for today's Mea Culpa. Last Sunday, I celebrated one year since my release from FCI Otisville due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It's surreal to think where I'd be or what I'd be doing if it were not for COVID. For one thing, I'd still be locked up, welding and fixing fire hydrants for 15 cents an hour and working on my backhand with other felons. Many of you will say that accountability requires that I do my time and serve my sentence, that I'm lucky to be sitting home under house arrest instead of lying in a cell the size of a small bathroom. But if that's all that I am to you, then you shouldn't be listening to this show. Try Rudy. He could use the listeners. 
Every waking hour since my early release has been spent doing everything in my power to warn people of the danger that Donald Trump and his lackeys pose to this nation. Because of my work, I've been remanded back to prison, had my family threatened, and all manner of personal indignities. It all pales to what I lost as a human being working and aiding Donald Trump in the furtherance of his evil agenda. So each day, my mind is singularly focused on making amends and righting the many wrongs committed in his name. In my mind, I'm close to even in the karmic seesaw of life, having done as much as many man to expose the evil and then do all that I could to see that this man was convicted for his crimes. That said, I've all but given up hope that I'll get any time cut from my sentence at this point. It's just the way things are and you take the good with the bad. So I'm locked in my home 22 hours a day. But it's a nice place. I have my wife, my daughter, my son, and I have all of you. And this is my final point. Had I not been released early, this podcast may never have happened. The connection I've made with all of you is something powerful that I'll treasure for the rest of my life. Whenever I get down or think I want to throw in the towel, I think of the tens of thousands of mea culpa fans rooting for me to keep going, and it fills me with gratitude and hope. I'm on the home stretch now. In November, my sentence will be up and the doors to my apartment will swing wide open. Maybe we can all meet up somewhere. Wouldn't that be nice? And thanks for listening. Hey, movie lovers. Who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels all for free. No signups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Maya Culp is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.